Please join me this morning in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 3. We have considered the first couple of chapters of 1 Samuel. This morning we will take up chapter 3 and that is where God calls Samuel to his special prophetic service. Listen as I read this chapter and then I will pray and we will begin to consider God's word this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 3. Now there was a boy, now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And at that time, Eli, whose sight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark was. Verse 4, and then the Lord called Samuel and he said to him, and he said, here I am. And he ran to Eli, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, lie down again. And so he went and he lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call you my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. And Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. And therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and he lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood and calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them therefore I swear to you the house of Eli that the iniquity of the house of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever verse 15 and Samuel lay until morning and then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli but Eli called Samuel and said to him, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what is it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. And may God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. And so Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God, as we take this time now, to turn our attention to your word. 
Lord, we understand that it is not a word like any other. It is the true word of God. It's not just stories from which we can draw moral conclusions, but it is your holy and perfect word that you have given to us for your own purposes. Lord, that you cause to be written down for our instruction and for our warning on whom the end of the ages have fallen. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take your living word that is here and take these words that were written so many thousands of years ago and you would enable me to communicate them faithfully and clearly. God, that by your spirit you would apply them to our hearts and minds in a, in a fresh, clear, and meaningful way. Use this time, even now, to instruct the hearts and minds of your people for your own name's sake and glory, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So coming to this, we've already come through that first part of Samuel where Samuel's father Elkanah and his mother Hannah and then there was the rival wife as well had gone and they would go up yearly to Shiloh and in that place they would offer their sacrifices and we remember the relentless torment that poor Hannah suffered at the hands of her rival wife Peninnah who was having many children and she was barren. Then she had pled with God and Eli had confused her for a drunk and so many things unfolded and we saw that she had pled, God give me a son and I will give him to you. And God answered that prayer and miraculously opened her barren womb and gave her Samuel. And when he was weaned, she delivered Samuel to the temple and he was being raised there by Eli in the presence of Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were not good fellows, not good moral examples, not a good environment, practically speaking, even though you would have thought that should have been the best environment to be raised in. It's the, at that point, the house of God, the, the preeminent place where the word of God would be declared, where the sacrifices would be offered, where all the standards would be upheld. If there ought to be any place in all the land that is upholding and standing and walking by God's word, it should have been here. But it wasn't. We saw also that among what those sons were doing were not even just greedy things and violating sacrifice protocol in order to take the best parts for themselves and to fatten themselves upon it, but then they were behaving wickedly and immorally with even visitors who would come and those women who would work at the entrance of the temple. Absolutely horrible behavior of which we're also aware to some extent Eli was aware of it. He was scolded in the previous passage that he and his sons were both becoming fat as a result of what was being done. So he may not have put his hand in it, but he did not raise his hand against it as he enjoyed those that roast meat uh, of choice portions and even of the fat that was to be burned in totality now all of this wickedness continues to go year by year Hannah and family are revisiting and she's giving a new robe each year that she makes now as we come to chapter 3 some time has transpired and it is now again time where God wants to communicate to Eli the judgment that he's going to bring 
It's important that he, Eli, as well as all those who will then hear of it, might not, uh, might not misunderstand that what ends up happening to his sons in subsequent chapters, it's not accidental. It's not, oh no, they died. How did that happen? What a terrible coincidence that both brothers died in the same battle. God is preempting that faulty conclusion by saying, I'm going to do this, and you're going to see this so that you will understand what happens, happens by my authority, by my power, by my sovereign will. Too much, even now in this world, people consider happens on the basis of coincidence or happenstance or chance. That's not the world we live in. From our human perspective, there are a lot of uh, accidents and unknowns. From God's side, there are no accidents or unknowns. And so when we take up this passage, I want to just look at uh, seven simple things as we move through it. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is the sad rarity of the word of the Lord. That's the first thing we note, the sad rarity of the word of the Lord. It says right there in that passage, in chapter 3, verse 1, Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Now let me help you out, because some of you uh, dear saints may be holding the, the King James with the richness of its expression from time to time. But here it says... The word of the Lord was precious in those days. Now, what often will make something precious is the fact that it is rare. If something is in absolute abundance, it would not be valuable. If cars were made out of gold and hubcaps were made out of diamonds and these things were just in absolute massive abundance, there would be no value to them. The fact that they are rarer items are the things that endow them with greater value. Not to mention that there's some beauty attached to some of these things. But, so the idea of precious really in this context is communicating it was rare. God had remember uh, at this point they don't have the Bible as we have it. They don't have the totality of the word of God. Christ has not yet come, and we, where we get that part in Hebrews, in the past he spoke to us in various and sundry ways, in many different ways, through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. But in those days, they did not have the Bible. We can go further. They didn't even have the Old Testament yet in their possession to this point they had the law that is what they had they had further than that they would have had the Pentateuch but they don't have the totality of it so God would oft communicate to the people through the prophets he would stir up a man revealing to him through visions and that prophet would then go out and declare to the people God's will God's instruction God's direction more frequently, God's correction because they deviated from his revealed will in the law. As we come to this place, 
Remember the temple is not yet built, so we have a tabernacle there in Shiloh. The people are practicing their religion in various ways, and they're coming and offering their sacrifices, but the sacrifices aren't being done right. Those who should be instructing them are themselves not following the will of God. Now, if you are supposed to be one who is instructing others on the law, but you are in present violation of the law, horrible violation of the law, how inclined would you be to set those things forth? As everyone gathers together, are you going to want to tell them this is what is pleasing to God, this is what is acceptable, this is right behavior, this is wrong behavior, or are you just going to keep that to yourselves and let everyone go through the motions, turning everything into to somewhat nothing but a ritual and nothing but a practice. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. Nobody was reciting the law, nobody was retelling the law. It became less and less and less. Now that is, a, that is a horrible tragedy. Even God speaks of a time later when the children of Israel will enter yet another phase of their wickedness. And it says this in Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine for bread, nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the word of God. They shall wander from sea to sea, north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. That's terrible. I mean, that was a condition that would come upon them in those days as a result of their disobedience. Now, if you go around and you interview from place to place and person to person, you might meet people who say, this is kind of talking about our time, kind of talking about our day. In so many places, the word of God is being set aside. In so many places, it's being replaced with things that men find a might bit more entertaining, a little bit more engaging, a little bit more exciting, a little bit more involving. And so well, this isn't appealing enough so let's see what we can do that will work better and and that's a tragic practice and and the more churches and the more people that do that the more we become something like what was going on in this day and we don't want that do we we long for there to be abundant harvest for people to run to and fro and the word of God to be being declared everywhere they go but that's not in my power or in your power. But certainly we can plead with God that that would be something that happens, that God would begin to stir the hearts uh, of, of church leaders uh, that all across this land, all across this world, if there are those who have become distracted, that God would again give them the sense, we live in a day and age in which the word of God ought not be rare. Why? We don't have to wait for a prophecy as they did in the days of old. We don't have to wait for that unique visitation. We have God's 
full and authoritative word. When we gather two or three in his name, he is in the midst of us. We have him with us. We have his word. Why would it be rare? And so we're blessed in a real sense to not have to have that absence. And so since God was not meeting with and visiting in the way that he had at certain times, it was surprising. But these warnings do come. Even it tells us this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1 and following. Paul tells to Timothy. Now this is way back in the apostolic days of the beginning of the church. And Paul tells to Timothy, who he's trained, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by the appearing of his kingdom. Okay, I charge you by God and by Jesus his son. Can there be a more powerful and authoritative charge? There cannot be. There's no way to, nowhere to look, no way to escape that kind of a charge. And then he goes on to say this, preach the word. This is what you must do, Timothy. Timothy and Titus were both serving God in environments where Gnosticism and all kinds of misteaching and all kinds of misrepresentation were creeping in. And the tendency could be to do all kinds of things. And he's reminding Timothy with all that's going on. It, it doesn't matter. In a church like where he was, maybe they had multiple elders. And at times in some of those early churches, they might meet in multiple different homes. There might be, as there were in Corinth, certain groups who say, we are of Cephas, and others, we are of Paul, and others, we are of Apollos. And so you have these small groups of sorts of which some of them might be getting larger. Well, this one, uh, you know, we like his teaching. We like what he's saying more, and, and we like what's going on over here. We don't like what this guy's doing. It's kind of weak. And so there can be this tendency, and it could be that even Timothy could look around and see the influence that some of those false teachers were beginning to have. And he could think, wow, they are more effective than me. And into that environment, Paul writes to him and says, no, no, no. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, preach the word. You stay the course. This is what you're to be about. Preach the word when? In season and out of season. Now, I like to believe there will never be an out of season. But he means that the, there's a time when people won't want to hear it. When people are loving it, preach it. When people are not wanting it, you still preach it. You stay the course. It doesn't vary. And, and strangely enough, he goes on to say it in this way. Reprove rebuke, exhort, wait a second, reprove, rebuke, exhort. Now he goes on to say things about encourage and teach, but reprove, rebuke, exhort are not comforting terms, are they? It's strong language. If I do that, people may feel he's kind of negative. I want to, you know, he's getting kind of negative spirited. Well, 
If he's preaching the whole word, there are going to be positives and encouraging and comforts and strengthening and fortifying. And there's going to be correction and conviction. Areas where the word comes and says, where it comes to you and says, what you're doing is not right. You cannot continue down that path. It must change now. What you're believing is not right. You cannot continue believing that. You must change and believe what God declares in His Word, in His word and you must believe it right now. Those are strong, strong things. And so uh, w- when you look at that, I mean, we have books published. Uh, God's Promises for Graduates. Right? Where is, and I don't think we'll ever see it, God's rebukes to graduates. I mean, I don't think we'll ever see that, and, and I can understand why, but I'm just showing that um, there is this tendency that we know what is more marketable. Now, I want to note this. The answer is not to be as unmarketable as po- possible. The answer is not to be in intentionally offensive and disturbing the answer is to be faithful to the word of God when it speaks a word of blessing a word of forgiveness a word of hope you know what we speak blessing hope forgiveness life peace where it speaks a word of warning and judgment what do we speak warning and judgment because It is God's word that we preach. Because what's going to happen with men? The time will come. A time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and turn away from listening to the word of God, listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. When the time is coming and people feel that way, there is the possibility that we will again come into a season where the word of God is rare. Let's pray that does not happen as long as we have strength and breath. The second thing I want to draw your attention to, not only the sad rarity of the word of the Lord in those days and the great hope we have it and it needs to be heard and declared, but secondly, the simple response to the word of the Lord. In this, we see this... uh, God begins to come. We have the the evening hours have come. The morning and the evening lamp of God is lit. The lamp has not yet gone out, so it's the, the waning hours of the evening. Eli has already laid down to sleep. Samuel has laid down to sleep within the temple complex itself there in, in, in the outside of the Holy of Holies, but in that vicinity. And he's laying there. Samuel is, and God begins to call him. And it's a confusing thing, as confusing as it would be to any of us if you're laying there alone in a room and you hear a voice call your name. I mean, the first conclusion that you might draw is that if you know there's somebody in an adjacent room, it's that person. And so you just go and ask him, yeah, did you call me? And he did that three times and each time he went in Eli said it's not me who's calling you it's interesting also if if you'll notice um, 
when you look at uh, verse 10, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 10, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. Now what I find interesting about that is in, in our record of it, in this, in this narrative, each time he says Samuel, and he says Samuel, and here we have a double Samuel. And for those who, who study God's word, it's so fun to see these kinds of things because uh, God has done this on a number of occasions. I, I, in Genesis, when Abraham was about to sacrifice his own son. In that moment, God calls Abraham, Abraham. And that double call is there, and he stopped, and another, another sacrifice is provided, and that's in uh, Genesis twenty-two eleven, When Jacob is reluctant and unwilling to relocate to where Joseph is in Egypt, God comes, to, God comes to him, and in Genesis 46, 2 says, Jacob, Jacob, and helps him make a crucial decision that he was reluctant and not ready to make. In Genesis, or in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, there's a burning bush. And out of that burning bush, we have God say, Moses, Moses. Now, it's interesting that you ha we have these, uh, the, these double occasions for whatever degree that might be to emphasize God's calling on that individual, might be to communicate to them with a sense of clarity or a sense of urgency. And here he says, Samuel, Samuel. And when, when we look at and want to consider what is the simple response to God's word, I love here, Eli gave good instruction, and Samuel followed it. The Lord speaks to him, and what is his response? The end of verse 10 there, it says, Speak, for your servant hears. Now, remember, we've got to at times understand, hears can carry nuance, right? You have ears but do not hear. You have eyes but do not see. Jesus was saying to that to people who had ears and could hear audible sounds, but they could not hear with understanding and acceptance, right? And so, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. He is speaking, he is responding to God in a position of what? Servant. He says, your servant. The indication that's carried with the weight of these words is, whatever you say, I will do. Wherever you send, I will go. Speak, for your servant Here's, I'm listening and I'm ready to do whatever you ask and whatever you tell me to do. Now, I'll just say this. Samuel was a boy at this time. There was a time where some were confused by Jesus' kindness and generosity often to the youngins. Remember that? And what did Jesus say on one occasion? He took one of those young ones and put him at his side and said what? Unless you become like one of these. 
You cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You cannot be my disciple. You have to become like one of these. What, what, is, this, what is this young one? The nature of a young one in, in, in a right and orderly home, he's going to be doing what he's told. He, he believes what his parents tells him. He obeys what he's told. We, I've talked about this before, just how easy it is. If, if the child is young enough, you could pretty much teach them anything. And we live in a world where some young ones in, in various uh, uh, isolated environments uh, can be indoctrinated with, with violent behavior and negative senses towards particular groups and communities. That, that kind of influence uh, uh, can be there. There is, there is a sense of a, a, a wonderful moldability. I often say with regard to little kids, if you want to and you start young, you could convince them that the moon is made of cheese. And maybe they, then, they, then they go to go off to school and maybe they're learning about the stars. Who, who knows anything about the moon? Made of cheese. No. Yes, it is. Daddy said, really? It, the kid will likely be fully convinced. Why? Because he trusts the one who taught him that. Here is Samuel in that simple reality. It's God who's speaking to me. Whatever he says, speak for your servant hears. Uh, it's hard not to also in this, in this sort of situation think of Isaiah. We know Isaiah chapter 6 verse 8 where the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And what does Isaiah say? Here I am, Lord. Send me. That willingness, that readiness. Even it's interesting when God met Paul on the road to Damascus after Paul has been it's been revealed to Paul who he's been persecuting I, I'm the Lord I'm Jesus who you've been persecuting then Jesus tells him this go ahead get up go on into the city and there it will be told to you what you must do for me what do you mean what I must do for? who said I was going to do anything for you well here's what happened he met Jesus. <laughs> when someone truly meets their God and that grace is shed abroad upon them, you know what they're all about? Whatever you would have me do, Lord. <laughs> I love that, that simple response to the word of the Lord. Speak for your servant hears. Now go on with me, if you would, down to uh, verse 11. In verse 11, it says, Then the Lord told Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Now, the idea of tingle here is the idea of quake and tremble. Okay? It's not just, ooh, this is exciting gossip. It's not that sense. There, there is a trembling and a quaking because listen closely. If God is going to so judge Eli, who is who's of the, the lineage of Aaron, he's gonna, if he's going to pour out his wrath so powerfully against the high priest, his own man, 
his special guy, then who of us will escape? Oh, no. If he's going to come against him, do any of us really think that we're going to be okay on our own? The ears of everyone will quake. And listen, he tells him, I will fulfill against Eli that which I have spoken concerning his house. And what did God speak first of all to Eli and now through Samuel? Your family's done. You're cut off. You're no longer going to be the priest. You're never going to have a man. Your two sons are going to die. You're never going to have a man in your house that lives to old age. Not one of them. Ever. And no longer is anyone from your own house going to hold that position of high priest. And now he tells this to Samuel. I want to note this for you. The third thing that we see in this passage is the severe reality of the word of the Lord. Now it's not always severe, but in this case it is a severe reality. The first time that God has spoken to Samuel and given him a message that he needs to speak, he's got to speak a message of crushing destruction and condemnation to someone that he likely loves as a grandfather. That's a difficult calling for a little young prophet, isn't it? The severe reality of the word of the Lord, uh, of this calling as a prophet is, you and I don't make the message. We deliver the message. We, we, we can't do anything but that. And, and in this occasion, uh, it's not always encouraging things. It's not always hopeful things. It's not always, as it is here, delightful things. Even so far as to say, listen to what it says. It says uh, in verse 13, declare, I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He let it go. And then listen, therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Wait. Um, hold on. You're not saying repent or fix it. You're saying it's lost, it's done, there's nothing you can ever do. What about 10,000 sacrifices? Will that get it done? What if I did a, a, a new sacrifice every day, morning and evening, forever? Well, what does he say here? It will never be atoned for. Now, someone might hear that message from the Lord and say, Brother, I think you're being a little harsh. You're kind of painting God in a negative light. I mean, 
really? He would, there was no forgiveness? There was no hope for that? Now, here's the reality. God himself reveals himself. And whatever he says, that's true. If it makes us uncomfortable, that doesn't make it less true. If it doesn't fit our expectation of what God ought to do, as if we should ever have that thought, what God ought to do. Uh, to some of us, this may seem strange or unloving. It may be peculiar and difficult. But what I want to set before you even now is, whatever may even seem peculiar and difficult, if it is God's word, it's true. I mean, if Samuel was to come out from there and say, well, God's going to judge your family, but probably there's something you can do to fix it. Would that have been faithful? No, he had to tell him, it's done for you. And there's no fix for this. I mean, this is again one of those passages that makes you scratch your head and say, hmm, partly because our God or our conception of God oft becomes too human. And we've got to be careful about that. I mean, there are other passages that I, like this that I remember reading on occasion and thinking, wow, how, uh, how difficult and how, how challenging uh, these passages can be. Uh, one of the things that I want to say with regard to the severe reality of God's word, listen to what it says in um, Jeremiah 23, uh, verse 28 and 29. It says this, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, and let, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. That's it. If we've got his word, what, how do we speak it? Faithfully. Exactly what he says. And then what else? What has straw in common with wheat, declares the Lord. And then he says this in verse 29. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks rocks in pieces. Now, just looking at those simple word pictures there, what sense do they give you? Comfort? Do any of you think, I, oh, I need comfort. Where's my hammer? You know, well, maybe, you, maybe someone would so I can break something and get it out of my system. No, no, no. Uh, fire and hammer. Now, that's not all that the word of God is, okay? Be very careful. It is also like a balm. We also, there is, there is a, we are comforted with the comfort of God. So let's not miss an imbal, get an imbalance here. We live in a world where there has to a degree been an imbalance on, on, the, on the comforts and the blessing and the encouragement and the hope. And, and I want to draw our attention to that there are also the rebukes and there are also the reproofs. There is also the hammer. Actually, when we speak of the Bible in the New Testament. What does it tell us about it in Ephesians chapter 6 as well as Hebrews chapter 4? It speaks of God's word as what? A sword. Which again is not, you know, an object of comfort. Honey, I'm not feeling well. Hold on, I'll get the sword. No, 
no, that's not going to work. There's no comfort in that. There's no, uh, but sometimes we miss that sense, and I don't want us to miss that sense. I remember years ago reading a verse like Deuteronomy 28, verse 63, and it made me scratch my head over and over again. What is this saying? What? It, where God's word says this, and as the Lord took delight in doing good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked up off the land that you're entering. Oh, wait a second. The first part, we all knew that God takes delight in blessing us. But that the scriptures would dare say... God will, in the same way, He will take delight in bringing you to ruin. Who's comfortable with that? I don't want to be mean, but it doesn't matter if we're comfortable with it. If the Bible says it, then, and my, my view of God says, well, that's not true. I'm wrong! <laughs> because the Bible's view of God is always right. So, somewhere... I have, would have some measure of imbalance, and maybe we will, because now we see in part, we know in part, we understand in part. While we're in this flesh, we have these limitations. But when Christ comes, then we will know fully, even as we ourselves are fully known. I mean, if you were to go back, it was um, it just a chapter before this, in chapter 2. That as Eli is telling his sons, finally, after he's already old and they're involved in rampant wickedness, uh, he tells them this in verse 25, if someone sins against man, God may mediate for him, but if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede? And then it says these words that are like, what? But they would not. The sons would not listen to the voice of their father. And why would they not listen? For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. I mean, those are uncomfortable verses. We've got, we've got to acknowledge that. But once we say they're verses, they mean something. And we've got to begin to take sin seriously. Begin to take judgment seriously. Take indeed the totality of God's word very, very seriously seriously and even Paul we know as we come to the New Testament he says um, I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God's word in Acts 20 27 now let's look at our fourth point in this we see in verse 15 through 17 what I call a subtle reluctance to the word of God a subtle reluctance and it's an understandable reluctance isn't it why is Samuel hesitant to tell this to Eli? Well, he, he cares for him. It's kind of negative. Well, it's, but there, with this, you see this subtle reluctance, and, and it, it comes there in chapter 3. Uh, I said, what, beginning in verse 15. Samuel lay there till morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. There you go. 
He's afraid of how men will, a man will respond. Maybe that is some of the reason that on occasion the word of the Lord is rare these days. Maybe it's because some are reluctant because what if people don't like it? What if they don't respond well? What if they kill the messenger or hate the messenger, not just the message? That would be bad. And so here, young Samuel has this subtle reluctance that possibly affects a lot of people. Uh, I'm familiar uh, with stories of individuals who, who preach through books of the Bible, as we're doing right now through 1 Samuel, but maybe they'll come to a certain chapter that is difficult. It's one of those deep doctrinal passages, you know, uh, that, that says things, maybe, uh, maybe like a Deuteronomy 28 th uh, there, that says things that make people uncomfortable. That ch and, and so we're going to skip this chapter and move on to a more practical one. And everybody says, hallelujah, amen. And they're, wait a second, but it is not uncommon. I, I remember to a certain extent, I mean, one of those chapters, for example, is Romans chapter 9. If you've ever read Romans chapter 9. Uh, I have spoken uh, a, across the world in different churches. And one thing I like to, from time to time, ask people, have you ever heard a sermon on Romans chapter 9 and it is a rare thing to hear a sermon on that oh, unless you're in particular circles that, that uh, want to declare it in, in a particular way but I want to say this we cannot be ashamed of or avoid anything in God's word if there are things in God's word that just hit us in the face then we need to be hit in the face <laughs> you know if they shake our some of our beliefs to the core then we need to be shaken to the core why because the only truth about God is what God says about God not what churches say about God I'll go so far as to say not what pastors and preachers say about God what God's word says is all that matters and may it be God that your word is faithfully declared. So we see the subtle reluctance and coming from the subtle reluctance I want to show you the strong responsibility to the word of the Lord. Listen to what Eli says to him. What was it that was told to you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so more to you and more to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told to you and that brothers and sisters is our wonderful responsibility in this world we will not hide anything of all that God has told we can't hide any of it and what, what's nice about it again that that simple servants response verse 18 so Samuel told him for those who have the King James there, every whit. <laughs> he told him every whit, every word, every 
thing, the Hebrew word is davar, which is word, thing. He, he, the totality of what God had spoken to him, he said it. He didn't hold back. That is the strong responsibility. We see the same kind of thing. I, I love that when uh, Moses gathers the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 31 at the end of his recap of the law before he passes away he says in verse 28 uh, God says assemble to me the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them we remember it is in Ezekiel that God is going to give him a message in Ezekiel 3 verse 10 moreover he said to me son of man all my words that I shall speak to you, receive in your heart, and hear with your ears, and then go to the exiles, the people of Israel, and speak to them and say, thus says the Lord your God, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are rebellious people. Hmm. So what I'm to do is not dependent on how people respond. Yes, that is right. It's not dependent. It's not changing. What's, what's astounding is uh, 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 sometimes there are those who love to study revivals. And it's always interesting to look back at the ways that God has been pleased at times to bring about mighty works and save lots of people. Um, but you look back to the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening in America. And, or the second great awakening. And what some people often don't understand, if you were to really go back, well, what, what can we do? What are the three steps that we can do to make that happen again? And people like Jonathan Edwards, who were instrumental in that first great awakening, you know what was, what, what was going on in his church when the great awakening began to, to, to grow? The very same thing he had been doing for the previous year to five he didn't change anything because God will bring about the harvest God will bring about the increased all we can do as it says in Corinthians is plant the seed and pour the water here's the seed in the water get it done well what if it doesn't grow God provides the increase you just keep planting and keep watering you keep doing it in hope He's the one who owns the field. He's pleased that you're sowing and watering. That's what we've got to be about. The strong responsibility. Um, and then sixthly, I want to look at, uh, we see the sovereign rights of the Lord of the Word. The sovereign rights of the Lord of the Word. Listen, after th this has been said to him, your house is done. You're going to be wiped out. It's going to be miserable. There's no fix for it. Oh, Eli's got to be thinking, hmm. The, the men's tendency is, so what should I do? So how can I fix this? <laughs> Eli, uh, he understands this. And listen to what it says. Just a very clear and simple verse there in verse 18. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, now Eli responded, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. He's like, it's as simple as this. 
I can't argue with God. If, if, if he says that we've, we've gone well past that line and there's no coming back, his judgment is the judgment that stands. What can I do? Let him do what seems... Now, what, now this isn't like... This isn't Eli giving permission. Well, let him do it. I'm going to let him do it. No, no, no. That's not the sense of it at all. It is, it's, it is an acquiescing recognition. Nothing I can do. He's God. It's interesting. We see the same idea come uh, uh, in Judges. It was funny. In Judges chapter 10, verse 15, the people were crying out to the Lord, deliver us, deliver us, help us. Uh, they're in under these attacks and under this persecution because of their sin. Oh, God, deliver us. And then they say this in uh, Judges 10, verse 15. Uh, the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only deliver us this day. Now, wait a second here. If you've sinned, what might seem good to him is judgment this day, not deliverance. So here, they remind me of our natural hearts, right? God, do whatever you want, but do this. Do it your way, but this is my way. I'd prefer that. Well, listen to what it says in uh, the book of Job, for example. In Job, it says, this is Job speaking here. Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be right before God? For, in verse, uh, chapter 33, Elihu, speaking on God's behalf, says, Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. In Proverbs, it says this in verse, chapter 21, verse 2. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Hmm. So you're saying that even if I think I'm okay, I'm all right, I might be wrong? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Our own self-assessment is not the basis of our final judgment. We're not going to have to stand there and, 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 and God's going to say, all right, tell me why I should let you in. There's none of that talk. You know, all the jokes about meeting so-and-so, uh, saint this and that at the pearly gates and all that nonsense. That's not happening. And so God has his absolute sovereign rights to do everything as he pleases, whenever he pleases, indeed all that he pleases. And so that is one of those things that we begin to learn in some measure. He is the Lord. What he does is right. What he does is just. What he does is faithful. Well, I, I don't understand how it's faithful that he's never going to give them a, a, a way of sacrificing and making this right agreed you don't understand agreed I may not understand which is why Romans chapter 11 verse 33 to 36 begins to tell us concerning the wisdom of God his ways are unsearchable and his judgments are inscrutable 
Let me simplify that. Beyond finding out. Oh, I know why. No, you don't. Well, I, so the reason why. No, we don't know why, except when the scripture tells us why. Then we know why. But there are certain things that we may look at and say, I, I, can't, I can't figure out why God would do this to him. Maybe some of us would say this. Wait a second. Here is Sodom and Gomorrah. And God tells Abraham he's going to destroy it. And Abraham tries to intercede and plead for it not to be destroyed. Abraham, the friend of God, says, God, don't do it. And what happens? Sodom and Gomorrah? Destroyed. Now another man, Jonah, goes to Nineveh, an also wicked city, rightly under the judgment of God. I ask you, is Jonah interceding for Nineveh? What is Jonah wanting? Get him, God! Get him! What? And then when God mercifully forgives and doesn't bring the judgment against them, he's angry with God. I don't understand how you can forgive them. Well, that, that, that should remain our constant confused consternation. I don't understand how you can forgive me. As well as, I may not understand how you can judge them forever for their sins. Okay, it's all right if we can't understand it. If he said it, we can believe it. Behold, your servant hears. And so, we close with the sure revelation of God. In verse 19, the sure revelation of the Lord through the word. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Now, that, that's probably a confusing statement. The words falling to the ground. Well, hopefully, you could probably figure out what that means. When he would say, God has told me this, they would happen. God would fulfill those very prophecies. So none of them failed. None of them, God said he's going to do this, and it doesn't happen. None of his words fell to the ground. God was with him. And all from Dan to Beersheba, which was a way of saying the whole, all the tribes knew that Samuel was established a prophet. Listen to verse 21. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Now, what's very interesting there is the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. You know what he didn't just do? It wasn't just told him prophecies. It wasn't just revealed what he was going to do. The Lord revealed himself through what? His word. That was so necessary for Samuel because what, look back up with me in verse 7. Samuel was serving and ministering before the Lord in the temple as a child, as was his, his responsibility as a boy. It said, now Samuel did not yet know the Lord. What? 
did he know about the Lord? Yeah, he probably knew certain things about him, but he did not know the Lord. That's one of the other rich things we often see in the scriptures. The, the word know in Hebrew, yada, carries a beautiful sense. Adam, yada, his wife, knew his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. It often speaks of an intimacy, an engagement, a communion with one another. Samuel didn't yet know the Lord as he was a young boy. Why is that? The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. But later on, what did God do? Revealed the word to him, and through that word, he knew the Lord. There is no knowing God apart from the gospel. There is no knowing God apart from that declaration. There's many who hear it, but don't truly hear it. There may be many who know about God, but don't really know God personally and intimately. You know what is necessary to bring about that change? God must reveal himself to you through his word. As God met and revealed himself on the road to Damascus, as God met and re to Paul, and as God continued to reveal himself, even today, God makes himself known. The Savior makes himself known as we declare the gospel. And people come to know, even as Samuel continued to grow in favor with God and in favor with men, we know that God sent his own son who grew in favor with God and in favor with men. He didn't, his son whom he sent did not receive the word of God. He was the word 